Now, in first or second Peter, we've been looking at this idea of entering into a kingdom that hasn't been established on the earth yet. And to some people, that might be kind of not important. You know, that's like Narnia, right? Now, Narnia, I think, is a very fun place. And if I could walk through a wardrobe or get on the right tube or however it is you do it, I think I would prefer it in Narnia. But the problem with Narnia is it doesn't exist. Now, Peter says, this eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming. And you can enter it right now. And he's been doing that for the last 30 years. He's about to enter more fully into this kingdom because he's about to die. And he knows he's about to die. But he wants to remind his readers that they can enter in at any time after his death because they've got Peter's example. They've got Peter's example. And now what he wants to say to them is that I am testifying before you today that this is true. This isn't Narnia. This is the real thing. And he says, I saw Jesus. I heard God. And Jesus confirms the prophetic word to be more sure. Peter is about to seal his testimony with his life. So we're reading here in 2 Peter chapter 1 from verse 16. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the word there, uh, translated fables, is the Greek word muthos, from which we get the English word myth. And a myth is a story involving beings that don't exist, written by men. A fable, my dictionary says, is a legendary story of supernatural happenings. And uh, is it real or is it a legend? Oh, it's a real legend, all right. A myth uses symbols to explain why something is. Like, how did the world get to be? Well, the ancient Greek myth goes that heaven and earth 
got together and had kids. And those were the Titans. And the Titans also got together and, well, they had the gods, the Olympian gods. And this one's about lightning and thunder, and that one's about the ocean, and this one's about the sky, and that one's about the sun, and they all kind of symbolize attributes. And ancient cultures have their myths, their stories, their fables, explaining about the gods, how they deal with men. The thing about myths is they were made by men. They come from men, and therefore they can be played around with. For example, the Greek myths. Writers would take them, either writing poetry or writing plays. They would put on plays every year in Athens. And they would play around with the material and do this and do that, make up variations and stuff restructure them for their purposes. They didn't feel a problem with it because they knew it was made up. And these myths did not come from the gods. In fact, intelligent, educated Greeks and Romans were really kind of embarrassed about these myths because they were pretty raunchy. Any book that you read about these myths, and especially for little kids, all the raunchy parts are taken out as retold for tiny tots. How do I know this? Well, when I was a kid, somehow I got into mythology. I mean, I was a little kid. But I thought it was cool that this guy runs around naked with little, little wings on his feet. And I thought, well, how do you get those? <laughs> Not the naked part. But I thought, man, that'd be cool. And that little helmet he's got with the wings? Shoot, dang. So I read a lot of it when I was a kid. And all that did was prepare me for the real thing. Marvel comics. <laughs> Step up to the big leagues, folks, and they are big leagues. Oh, I was a nerd back then, but now Marvel has taken over the world and a good portion of your money. <laughs> but it's interesting. A lot of the myths back then were written to entertain. So we got myths nowadays of superhuman beings that don't exist. And the writers play with the material because all the Marvel nerds watch the movies and go, oh, it never happened. Like it existed, right? But they play with everything. Why isn't the Bible a myth? Because it is rooted in history. Now, other religions are not rooted in history. And in fact, it doesn't matter if their founders exist or not. Buddhism is not dependent on Buddha. You can take Buddha right out of that, and it doesn't matter. Because it's about the teachings. You're supposed to do the teachings. Same with Confucius, Krishna, no historical connection. It's separated from the person. So it doesn't matter. Now, people try to put Christianity into that same category of, well, it doesn't matter if Jesus existed or not. You know, the important thing is that he had wonderful teachings that sort of make some people kind of feel warm and squidgy inside. And you know, dear, if you're one of those people, pat, 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 well, good for you. You just keep on believing. Go, girl. But it doesn't matter if Jesus existed or not. The main thing is the teaching, you know, be nice. 
Well, as far as I know, Jesus never taught, be nice. And that's not the purpose of the teaching. Do you know that Jesus' teaching doesn't save anybody? You're not saved by doing what Jesus said to do. Because only his death for your sins save you. See, Christianity is historical. The teachings of Christianity is that the Son of God was born into the world during the reign of Caesar Augustus. And he grew up sinless and ministered during the reigns of Tiberius Caesar and Herod Antipas, while Pontius Pilate was procurator of Judea. That fixes a, an exact time place. And on Passover, 33 AD, Jesus died for the sins of the world, and he was buried. And three days later, he rose again from the dead. So all the doctrines of Christianity are inseparably linked to Jesus and rooted in history. And the whole Bible is rooted in history. And if Jesus didn't exist, and if he didn't die, and if he didn't rise from the dead, there is no Christianity. Those teachings won't save you. They only condemn you. Like, if somebody hits you on this cheek, turn this one. That didn't save you. That just got you beat up. All right? So you could go through life obeying that and nothing would happen. Die in your sins. Now, the whole Bible is rooted in history. Because it's true. And I'm always reminded of Sir William Ramsey. Back in the last century, he was going to do the world a favor and prove that the Bible was wrong, that Luke was wrong, because of all the historical elements in the book of Acts. The various names for the rulers of certain regions and certain um, ethnic groups and all. And he says, you know what? I'm going to prove that he was wrong. And that will blow up the entire Bible. So he went to what is now modern-day Turkey, retrace the steps of Paul, investigate, excavate. And what he found was, is that Luke is right every single time. And it shocked him because he realized these are all incidental details. Luke isn't thinking, boy, you know, if I don't get the name of this guy right, everybody's going to know it's a fake. He just wrote it down as it happened, and he researched it, and he got it. And when Ramsey realized, you know what? If the smallest details are accurate, that means there is careful attention to the truth. The truth is important. And then he realized, the big thing about this is true. Jesus really did rise from the dead. So he became a Christian because he realized, right down to the smallest details, this book is true. So Peter affirms, first of all, that he did not make anything up, and neither did the other apostles. No plot among the disciples to make a new religion. Now, you may have heard of a book that was written in the 60s called The Passover Plot, written by a Jewish uh, professor, and his whole point was to destroy Christianity. But what it did was it kind of riled the Christians up. 
And they went to work researching and proving that all of his propositions are wrong. And they're not just oops, but they're deliberate slanders and misrepresentations and basically bad scholarship. But the author's point was to say they made it up. And Jesus made it up, and it's all a fake. It was a big hoax, and they wanted to make a new religion. Well, there wasn't any plot among the disciples. Like, let's make a new religion, and we're going to make a lot of money from this, and it's going to work out great. So we're going to all say that Jesus rose from the dead and just work it from there. Um. There is no profit to be made by being a Christian for the first 300 years of Christianity. And during that time, Christianity suffered 10 serious persecutions by the Roman Empire. Illegal to be a Christian, illegal to own the scriptures. The Christians went underground. That's why you go to Rome and you go underground to the catacombs. That's where they live to hide from the Romans. That's where their burial sites are. So you didn't make any money from Jesus for the first 300 years. That would get you prison, beatings, and death. Every apostle died because he would testify that Jesus rose from the dead. All they had to do was save themselves by saying, oh, it's all a lie. We had this idea, but it was stupid, so we're going to say, okay, we're done. He didn't die. Please let me go. Because you can't die for a lie. You're that committed to a lie? But these men and women could face trial and death because they knew that Jesus rose from the dead and they knew that they were going to rise from the dead. That's what gave them the courage to say, well, okay, if I die, I die. I'll see you in a hundred years. <coughs> and Peter says, far from making anything up, we heard the voice of God. Now, you know, it wasn't just this one incident, being on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and Jesus just, you know, glows with light, and this is at night. So no candles or fire. It's just like, oh, Jesus, man, turn it down. See, the disciples were there around Jesus on purpose so they could be with him and see it all. So they're walking around following Jesus and watching him heal people of anything. Leprosy? Don't touch him. Well, he's not a leper anymore. I just healed him. Blind guy? Open your eyes. Deaf people? Huh, demons? Come out of him. Storms, stop that. Thank you. How about we don't have any food to feed all these people? What, what do you got? Five bread rolls? Okay. Two fish, little, little tiny things? Okay. Okay, now you start handing these out to everybody. Okay. 5,000 people are stuffed. They can't eat anymore. Well, why don't you go pick up the baskets full? Here's one for you, one for you, one for you. 12 baskets. Now go and pick up the extra pieces. You know, be tidy. I got a full basket. Do you want any more? I can't. I couldn't. See, they saw this stuff, and they heard every word that Jesus would teach multiple times. They could say it. By heart, they could even lip sync. They could do it. They knew how it went. So 
of all the incidents Peter could point to, this particular one is remarkable because Jesus actually prophesied that they would see it. In Matthew 16, verse 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that was six days before it happened. So maybe they filed that thought away and thought, well, okay, who knows what he means? We never know what he means. So what does that mean? Somebody's not going to die until the kingdom? They're going to see the kingdom? I don't know. And then they're with Jesus on the mountain, and Peter saw the kingdom that he's telling everyone here in this epistle to enter. He saw the kingdom because he saw Jesus transfigured with power, shining with light, and there's Moses and Elijah there. Now, they died centuries ago. He knows they did. But he's seeing, it's Moses. That's what he looks like. There's Elijah. Who would have thought he had such a big nose? And then they hear the voice of God speaking to Jesus, bringing him glory and honor. God the Father calls the Lord Jesus my beloved son. And then you remember that Peter, James, and John, they're there, they're, this bright cloud comes out of nowhere and envelops them. Not a dark cloud. It's a bright cloud. Have you ever been inside a bright cloud? I think that would be terrifying. This bright cloud's got me. Where's, where's the other guys? And then a voice comes out of the cloud. It's all around you. Listen to him. And the next thing they know, the cloud is gone. Jesus is Jesus again. And, and they, they're on the ground because they don't know another place to go. And they're terrified. And then Jesus says to them, don't tell this vision to anybody until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Any symbolism here? Any fairies? Any magic charms like a ring or a sword? Any, they all lived happily ever after ending? You know, this ends on a puzzle. It ends on a, a hard statement. What do you mean, don't tell anybody? What about rising from the dead? What's that? What was that? What was that about? Jesus isn't talking. So this doesn't even entertain. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. Peter was an eyewitness. And an eyewitness means you saw what happened, you heard what happened, and you can explain what happened. That's what an eyewitness does. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives a list of people who saw Jesus raised from the dead. He appeared to Kephas. That's the Aramaic form of Peter. Peter saw Jesus alive from the dead first. Then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Paul is saying they're still alive. You could go to them and talk with them. 
And the important point is that 500 people can't have the same hallucination. Because a hallucination is subjective. It's in your head. Nobody else can share it. Whatever problem you're having, if you think spiders are climbing the wall, only you can see them. But 500 people can't see a hallucination at the same time. And he says, you could ask any of them. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. That means more than 12. All the apostles that ever were, Jesus appeared to them. And then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Paul could say, I saw Jesus. I'm an eyewitness. So these men did not make up a fake religion. They heard Jesus. They saw Jesus. That's their testimony. Now, prophecy is God's way of verifying his message. The message is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the King. He's going to rule over all the earth. The kingdom of God is coming. And it, it's going to be established on the earth. Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. He is going to rule forever. He is going to destroy his enemies. That's the message. How do we know that's true? How do we know that a bunch of guys really didn't get together and decide what was going to be said and then go out there and do it? How do we know? Well, verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, that's kind of a clunky sentence, isn't it? But this word that means interpretation, they've translated that, it, it's a word that we get, the modern-day word, exegesis. And exegesis is the explaining of a source. What does that source mean? And in effect, that is saying that prophecy does not come from people. It's not a human thing. So we have to rule out the fact that people made it up. That's what Peter is saying. And he says, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God is speaking here. And God speaks about something that only God can know, and that's the future. And this is what prophecy is about. Peter lays it out for us. You notice that, first of all, God makes a holy man in order to receive his message. Some of your modern translations have just men and not holy men. It's the difference between two text traditions. But the effect is the same. If you look at all the prophets that God raised up, he always has to call them aside and prepare them to be his prophet. Every single time when it's with Moses, he draws them aside and he says, you're going to be my spokesman. And Moses says no. And God says, oh, yes, you will. <laughs> Isaiah is the most extreme example. Isaiah sees God in the temple and says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the angel goes to the altar, takes a live coal off the altar and says, come here. Right on his lips. And says, there. <laughs> All fixed up, ready to go. This has taken away your sin. See? So God 
prepares a holy man or woman to be a spokesperson. And then he communicates his words by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon the prophet and the formula in the Old Testament is the word of the Lord came to. The word of the Lord came to me. I saw the word of the Lord. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, this formula, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. This is not my message. And the Holy Spirit causes the words of God that he has spoken to be written down and preserved. And God makes detailed promises about what he is going to do. Not vague kind of things like Nostradamus. Well, it could have been Bobby Kennedy, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was John Lennon. Who's Nostradamus talking about? But when you get to the Bible, you have details. And we'll see them in a minute. And the fulfillment of these promises comes centuries later, thousands of years later. Now, you know, it's impossible for someone to know the future in that kind of a detail. It's not possible. Only God, who's outside time, can know everything and have it written down so that we can know this is God. Now, this is unique. No other religion has prophecy, period. The Judeo-Christian tradition is alone in this. Islam has no prophecy. No cult has prophecy. The Jehovah's Witnesses tried it. They thought World War I was Armageddon, and they predicted Jesus to come back three times. They were wrong. And finally they said with 1918, Jesus came back invisibly, and he lives in the Watchtower's headquarters in Brooklyn, New York. You know what specifically says in the Bible? That that's not how Jesus comes back to the, the earth. Don't say, oh, he's out in the deserts, or he's in the hidden room, because the return of Jesus is going to be like lightning flashing from east to west. Every eye is going to see him. So that cannot possibly be true. But that's what they teach. And they don't prophesy anymore. Because they tried that, and it doesn't work. Nobody can prophesy. There is no predictive prophecy in any other religion, period, just here. Because only the true God can write the future down thousands of years before it happens. So, that makes all these words of God spoken in the entire Bible, valuable, beyond price. There is no other book like this. These are the words spoken by God. Now, Peter says in verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Now, that never meant that Oh, we don't know if this is true or not. Because when God speaks, that means it will be performed. No word of God ever just falls to the ground empty and, whoa, I guess I just didn't mean that. Forgot all about that one. Oops. Every single word of God is true. And you can bet your life on it. But the point is, the promises that God made 
must be fulfilled. He didn't just give promises and say, well, that's good enough. But he's going to do what he said he was going to do. So Jesus came and fulfilled prophecy. And not just one or two or three. I have a book here. Finally brought my show and tell. Evidence that demands a verdict. And Josh McDowell here has one chapter where he details 60 major prophecies about Jesus. Now somebody has counted up over 300 that apply only to his first coming. But Josh talks about 60 major ones. And uh, you can look at page 166 here. And he lists 29 prophecies from the Old Testament that were delivered over a span of 500 years. And Jesus fulfilled those 29 prophecies in a 24-hour period that were spoken about 500 to 1,000 years before. Can you imagine that? And on page 174, Josh McDowell answers an objection. Well, couldn't Jesus have somehow planned to just fulfill the prophecies himself so that everybody would think, oh gosh, he's the Messiah. Well, he planned it. You know, he got the donkey so he could fulfill that prophecy in Zechariah. Here comes your king on a donkey. Well, he could do that. But then Josh lists seven prophecies that were completely beyond Jesus' control to make happen. And here they are. The place of his birth. He could not determine where he was going to be born. But it's determined in Micah 5. Had to be Bethlehem. The time of his birth. The manner of his birth. That is, virgin birth. His betrayal. The manner of his death, which was piercing. It says in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. The people's reactions, that is mocking, spitting, staring, that's in Psalm 22. The piercing, that is, they shall look upon me whom they pierce. That's Zechariah chapter 12. And then his burial. Okay, there's, there's eight Something's wrong with my digital calculator here. There's eight. His burial with a rich man in his death. All right? Now look. These are just eight prophecies. Could somebody fulfill those accidentally, by chance? And the answer is yes. They could. What are the chances? The chances are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is a 1 followed by 17 zeros. And you might know the test, the way you could make this a little more accurate. And that is, you take the state of Texas, which has 268,596 square miles, and cover it two feet deep in silver dollars. Now, Texas is three times the size of the United Kingdom. So take three United Kingdoms, cover it with silver dollars two feet deep, mark one red, and then fly over the UK and drop it from a plane. Take your chap, blindfold him, Send them to walk somewhere in three times the size of the UK and say, you only have one chance. 
Go find that silver dollar. Did he do it? I don't think so. But see, this is just eight prophecies. Somebody figured out how much of a chance it would take to fulfill 48 prophecies. That is a chance of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. So you take a 1 and follow it with 157 zeros. You know how you do that one? You take the universe and you fill it up with electrons and you take one electron and you put a little red mark on it with a sharpie. Then you throw it back in the universe, blindfold your guy and send him off. Go find an electron. Go pick one. And if he manages to do it, then somebody could come along and accidentally fulfill 48. But then you can look at this list of 60 major prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, 29 of them in a 24-hour period. Now, you know, there are more prophecies in the Bible. And these prophecies refer to the second coming of Jesus. Now, what are the chances that Jesus isn't going to come back? Well, see, we have the prophetic word made more sure because it's impossible that these prophecies could have been fulfilled the first time by accident. That confirms all of them. So the chances that Jesus will not come again are nil. Zero, zip, zilch, nada. It's going to happen. So the amazing thing is in the Bible, you can hear God speaking. This is the voice of God. And you can learn the voice of God. You can learn how he talks so that you can compare all the voices in your head and you can know when it's God talking to you. And the Holy Spirit is right there when you pick up a Bible. He can communicate that word to you. Have you ever had that experience? You sit down with a Bible and it almost jumps off the page at you. And you go, wow, I get it. Wow. Have you ever had that happen? See, he's with us. And he's enabling us. And he's talking to us. Now, the possibility is that the devil's going to be right there when you pick up the Bible. To bar your way into that eternal kingdom. He's right there to say, you know what? This is a myth. It's a fable. None of it happened. And there are people who are trying to bring unity by bringing all religions together. And they can do it. But in order to do that, they have to kind of throw out the various things that don't agree. Have you noticed that? So on certain days, you'll have all these different religious people getting together to pray. You think, well, who are they praying to? Whose conception of God, according to which religion, who are you praying to? And the answer is, well, just, we're just praying. So it's like, dear unknown person. Okay, well, you can throw out, you know, certain truth and, well, we don't need this. Let's just get together. But it's not a real unity. 
because that means you don't know who that is. See, the only unity that can possibly be is what comes from the fact when we know who God is. And see, God looks exactly like Jesus, defines God explicitly. He is the exact character of God. Tori says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And we can't throw that out to fit in with everybody else. And we're going to resist that. We're going to hold on to the truth. See, this is what Peter says here in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed. Are you paying attention to the voice of God when he's speaking to you? Are you letting him talk to you? If you are, good. I tell you, no pastor ever loves to see his people not listen to God, not be in the Bible. Because all you can think of is, this is a train wreck about to happen. So you always want to make your pastor happy. You never want God to say, now why did you make him unhappy? What is your problem? I'm sorry. At least make your pastor happy. You can make God happy too. And here's the thing. Until Jesus comes, we're going to hold on to the truth. Because he is coming, you see. And Peter says in verse 19, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Now, in, in Revelation twenty two sixteen, Jesus says, I am the morning star. What's going to happen when Jesus arises in my heart? You've seen the sun come up, right? The sky is lightning, and it's getting brighter and brighter. And all of a sudden, that first ray comes over the housetop, and you go, ah, wow. What happens when that happens in your heart? And that light just comes out, and it's not like metaphorical light. But it's Jesus arising in your heart, and you are transfigured just like Jesus was on the top of the mountain. Now, Peter saw that, and he says, it's going to happen to you. And so you do well to pay attention to the prophetic word made more sure. This voice of God is the light in a dark place. We live in a dark place, don't we? And it's not going to get any lighter. This light, this voice of God is going to keep you from getting lost and listening to men who make up fables. You do well to pay attention to that prophetic word. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for this most valuable book. We praise you that there is none like it. Preserved for us the very voice of God. And we thank you that you had all this written down. Hundreds and thousands of years in advance so that we would know 
beyond doubt. This is you talking and nobody else. It can't be forged, faked, made up. Every word you speak is true, and we glory in that. We praise you for that. And so we pray that you would write this word on our hearts and make it part of us. And we look forward to the morning star arising in our hearts. We look forward to that joy, that honor. And so, Lord, we pray that each one of us would be there on that day. If anyone has not yet received Jesus, this is your time to do it. Now, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. We're going to have communion this morning. And receiving Jesus is like receiving communion. He has to come in, just like you eat the bread and drink the grape juice. And you can ask him in right now. As we're worshiping, as the elements are being passed out, Take this time to repent, to confess your sins to God, to be ready to take communion. Don't take communion in an unworthy way. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Take the time we have right now to be clean before the Lord. And if you need to receive Jesus, receive him now. And then you can take communion. Bless our time of communion now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.